From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Department of Homeland Security will have a new chief information officer soon. Eric Heisen served as the executive director of DHS's digital service from 2015 to 2017. His official title now at the agency's senior advisor in the office of the chief information officer. Federal News Network reports the White House will appoint him to the CIO job officially in the coming weeks. Hundreds of members of 31 advisory boards at the Defense Department are out of jobs tonight after Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin ordered a review of the panels. Members of six other boards will stay, but the review will look at those boards and their members too. Defense News reports defense officials don't have an exact number yet of the number of members that Austin will ask to resign. The Federal Service Impasse Panel has 10 empty seats with the resignation of all 10 members. President Biden asked for the resignations to take effect by the end of the day Tuesday. Federal Times reports the panel resolves disagreements between agencies and unions on collective bargaining. The opening line of one of President Biden's new executive orders says it's his administration's policy to, quote, make evidence-based decisions guided by the best available science and data. The data he refers to will fuel every agency's risk management operations and the government's as a whole. Cynthia Vitters is managing director of Leader Enterprise Risk Management Practice for Government Public Services at Deloitte. She's former chief risk officer at the Department of Education. Cynthia, welcome. It's good to see you again. Is there something about a transition period like we're going through now that makes ERM more useful or more necessary? Yeah, Francis, as you know, a transition period is a critical period of time when new leadership and appointees are being named into new positions. And they're being asked to get up to speed on all aspects of agency operations in very short windows of time. The transition process includes naming new staff members, creating new policy agenda. And for this particular administration and presidential transition, it's also included naming a new COVID advisory board. There are thousands of real-time decisions that will have to be made from the moment that the new president takes office. During this period of time, a key deliverable that's produced from an enterprise risk management program can be extremely useful for new leaders to leverage as a source of information. The most notable is an enterprise risk profile, which you and I have talked about many times. This is a document that's a comprehensive of the most significant risks that an agency is facing but it also includes the agreed upon significance and likelihood of each risk of occurring, how well they're being mitigated, and also who is accountable for managing that risk. This provides an overarching snapshot or window into an agency's risk exposure and how it impacts the mission, strategic goals, and operations of the agency. Gathering and synthesizing this type of information could take months for a new leader co to collect However, the important point here is that since most federal agencies have developed risk profiles and processes and frameworks for managing risk, all of this can be leveraged by new leaders as they come into the organization to help them better understand the landscape and the risks that should be monitored and tracked on a real-time basis. Cynthia, you and I talked a little bit offline about the challenge that organizations are up against, Maybe, and it's mostly, I think, at the middle and lower levels. When people think about risk management, they leave out the enterprise part, and they're thinking about what is the risk exposure that we have to this one particular thing rather than coronavirus. 
how does, rather than how does that fit into kind of a matrix of all of the risks that an organization is up against? What's the mentality, risk profile is one thing, that's the mechanism, what's the mentality shift that agencies should be doing to break out of that, to get their people to understand this is a mosaic and not one individual tile? Yeah, and I, you know, it's in a, it's in a very important point, um, important question that you know has been going on for quite some time out there, and you know, I think that what you're really getting at is that there's some confusion around the difference between enterprise risk management and traditional risk management, which agencies have been doing for decades. You know, traditional views of risk management think about risk more individually, and they place responsibility on an individual business leader to manage risk within their area of individual responsibility, also thought of as siloed risk management. Let me give you an example. Um, you might think about a chief technology officer being responsible for only managing risks related to the organization's IT operations, but not thinking about the broader impact and the enterprise impact that those risks may have on the organization. Again, the idea behind, behind ERM is looking at it from a holistic portfolio view of view um, most significant risk to the entire agency. It seeks to create a top-down enterprise view that might impact you know, the whole agency. So again, attempting to create a full view of all risks impacting the enterprise. It's important because it allows leaders to see the interconnectivity of risks, but also forces them to evaluate the significance and likelihood from an enterprise view. So I don't mean to get too philosophical on you, but as you're describing that, I'm thinking the first, the, the model that I've tried to think about when I'm approaching a risk management conversation like this is a matrix where down the one side you have the risks and you have the potential outcomes going across the top or whatever. As I'm hearing you describe it, I'm still thinking about it wrong because there's a depth behind each of those also. This is a cube and not a square that people should be thinking about, right? Absolutely. What does one do Again, to change that mindset, to get people to understand that maybe they've been doing it wrong and that has to change. Again, Francis, I think it's just, you know, spending time, um, you know, working with key leaders to help them understand, you know, the value, the power of looking at it across the entire agency, across the whole portfolio view. Um, when they start to see the interconnectivity, I think that, you know, some magic is sometimes found and, and made through, you know, seeing what happens when you put all of this information together. All right, we have about a minute left. What is the, back to the, the transition idea, how does the risk landscape change or evolve pre, during, and after a transition like we're in right now, Cynthia? Yeah, another great question. Two main topical categories to think about um, during periods of transition. Um, and the way we think about it is two buckets of risk. The first is human capital risk. That's the risk that agencies don't have the right people with the right skills to do the activities needed to carry out mission. During transition, employees are coming, they're going, they're taking on new positions, they're exiting old, and it can take time for new appointees to be operating in full capacity. Collectively, this can create an increased exposure of risk in, in that particular area. Second category to pay close attention to is operational risk. This is a risk that an agency can't successfully execute or administer programs or operations needed to fulfill its mission. Two aspects of this to think about. One, career employees need to feel empowered to make decisions. Again, as agencies work through transition, um, you see career officials taking on temporary or acting roles as new leaders arrive. These individuals need to be able to continue to make the significant decisions that they need to on a real-time basis. 
The second aspect of this increased exposure is the lack of possible preparedness to execute new policy agenda. To be better prepared for this, we encourage agencies to closely monitor new policy changes, what operational changes might be necessary to execute programs, um, new and existing programs. So again, Francis, key consideration with all of this is for agencies to be aware of potential changes in risk posture and exposure as they're experiencing any kind of change can be transition, it can also be a significant change like you know, COVID-19 crisis. Keep a close eye on how the risks are being looked at, thought about, monitored, managed, and mitigated um, to reduce the overall likelihood of occurrence. Cynthia, thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate your time today. Up next, a big boost to the Technology Modernization Fund could change government systems forever. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how to scale government IT more than 100 times. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Technology Modernization Fund could get a $9 billion boost in the next coronavirus relief bill. A surge in IT modernization spending could change the way the government approaches digital transformation. Mike Hettinger is president of the Hettinger Strategy Group. Rich Butel is principal at Cirrus Analytics. Gentlemen, welcome. It is good to see you again. Rich, this is like a nirvana moment probably for you guys. At the very beginnings of this, I don't think anybody envisioned a possibility even of a $9 billion influx at some point in time. What does that look like on the, on the back end in your view? What does this look like six or eight months or a year out after this kind of a cash influx, if it happens? Well, I think it could be transformative. I think that it could provide the true philosophy and, and, and purpose of the Technology Modernization Fund, which is to serve as seed corn and, and to start a virtuous cycle of innovation within government to address these tremendous challenges of IT modernization, particularly as accelerated by the COVID crisis. Mike, uh, David Jive, a member of the TMF board was on the program on Sunday talking about what would happen mechanically if there's this influx. I counted up before that conversation, there's about 80 million that they have let so far that they're managing now through the fund. What's that like almost 100 times uh, scale look like in your view? What has to happen to get from here to there? Well, I think, I mean, first and foremost, uh, you know, we want to make sure that we've, uh, that we push as hard as we can to get the money, right? And and that's certainly not a, a done deal. But mechanically, I think, you know, there, there are about 500 million uh, worth of projects that have been presented to the TMF board previously. So there's a list, you know, agencies have a priority list. You can look at the GAO high risk list to identify some other areas where we could, uh, you know, potentially find some projects that should go through this process. And then obviously with solar winds and, and um, some of the remediation we think is going to be needed, you know, going to need to be done on the, on the cyber front, I think we'll, um, there, there'll be plenty of projects that, that can, uh, can go through the process. TMF might have to loosen its reins a little bit, you know, figure out how they can move uh, projects quicker through the, the board process and all of that. But, uh, but we can work through that. Mike, you said the, we've got to get the money first, which is an astute observation. What has to happen to make that happen? And what do you think the odds are at this point? I mean, I, maybe not handicapping it, but is that something that is likely possible, uh, almost a lock at this point? Where is it on that spectrum? You know, it, just like we've talked about before, it's really contingent, I think, on a, on a couple of things. But you know, the ability to get the larger package done is certainly one of those things. Um, you're hearing a lot of reports now about 
budget reconciliation and and um, and you know smaller packages being proposed by um, some folks over in the Senate. So, I, you know, I think what we're hearing is the House bill um, when it comes out, which which may be relatively soon, will probably include um, all or some of the of the TMF money. And remember, there's money in there uh, for GSA and for OMB and and CISA as well. So um, we'll see what the whole package looks like. I'm not as confident that the Senate bill will include any money, and then uh, we can kind of negotiate from there, hopefully. Rich, the the landscape of this, uh, what what Mike is talking about there is machinations on the Hill. What I don't hear anybody, neither of you nor anybody else who's talking about this discussing, is the need for the agencies to demonstrate they have the need or they have the ability to execute the projects. Is that pretty much a done deal at this point? Do you think there's, even if people don't agree the money's necessary, is there agreement that the agencies have these projects that need work? Yeah, I mean, remember, it's a mature process. Going back to the OMB memorandum on February 27 of 2018, um, and there's a whole website devoted to specific approaches, templates, and requirements, and a very mature process of, of review and evaluation. So the implementation of this process, aside from Mike's comment about loosening the reins, is pretty well established. And, and agencies are required by the review criteria to bake cybersecurity into every facet of their proposals. Do you see a marker here, Rich, because President Biden has said we need this money, House leadership has said we need this money, if the Senate doesn't come along, and maybe it's not $9 billion in the stimulus bill, maybe it's one or two or whatever the number may be, is this at least a marker that we're not going to be talking in the 125 million neighborhood that we've been in for the last couple of years anymore? Do you think, Rich, this portends a future, a bigger future for the TMF in some form or another? I hope so, because I think it was a great idea. And particularly when combined with the working capital fund concept, uh, which gets very little discussion, um, the many CIOs we've talked to, including one just last week, said they wouldn't use TMF because they thought that the payback requirement would would hand tie them on in terms of future direction and future future procurements and the like. And so that's clearly an area that needs to be addressed. Mike, we have about a minute left, and Rich makes a good point. When you uh, originally started coming on this program and talking about this legislation years ago, there were two pieces. One was TMF and the other was the working capital funds at the agencies. They became combined. And we don't hear much about the working capital funds anymore. Is that an issue, Mike, that you think agencies should jumpstart or are they and we're just not hearing about it? Well, there's been some effort through the you know normal appropriation process. And I can't remember the specific agencies that asked for authority to set up those working capital funds. But I think Right now, as we're thinking about the $9 billion for TMF, that's really the focus. And Rich mentioned they're kind of built on, on my point. You know, the payback requirement's been an issue, and I think it was really encouraging to see when, when the Biden administration proposed this, they also proposed loosening those reins, um, and so some of the money won't have to be paid back. Mike Rich, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you. Up next, cybersecurity at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's working for the agency and what the agency needs to work on. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. This month's Digital VA is brought to you by Pure Storage. 
President Biden's nominee to be Secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs, Dennis McDonough, says if the Senate confirms him, he'll make cybersecurity a top priority at the VA. The Senate will vote on his confirmation uh, soon. Joe Stenica is Deputy Chief Information Security Officer, Executive Director for Information Security Operations, and Chief Privacy Officer at VA. Joe, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on. What are some of the big cyber issues VA is up against right now? Well, glad to be here first, Francis. Uh, some of our main challenges are obviously we have a telework-focused workforce. We had to change the way we do business because of the COVID pandemic. And we also have an agile adversary that's always after us trying to figure out ways to get into our networks. To your expertise as a privacy expert, were there any privacy issues in the transition to remote work? That's something that I don't think a lot of folks have focused on. Luckily, there were no issues as we moved from a on-premise to a telework-focused uh, uh, environment. Uh, we used our current technologies. Uh, we had enhanced procedures, and we have a very trained workforce that really made that seamless for us. What are you seeing as far as uh, the ability to, to transition to remote work, stay in a remote work environment, and maybe even continue in a remote work environment to some degree, after the pandemic isn't an issue anymore? Well, one of the things we found really early uh, in March in 20, uh, that we needed a workforce together in IT. So we developed the architecture. We had the bandwidth required to go to telework and we had the uh, security procedures and technologies already in place. So we do have the infrastructure and background to continue to telework, uh, whatever our leadership wants to do and how long that's for. Obviously, the solar winds breach has been on people's minds, a great topic of discussion. How has the threat landscape changed, evolved uh, since the beginning of the remote work environment last March? Uh, well, solar winds is an interesting problem. It's a, a supply chain problem uh, that is across the world, across federal agencies. And luckily for the VA, we didn't get hit by that. We're still working uh, that diligently. But uh, it just shows the need and requirements to work closely with our uh, industry partners and to provide secure solutions to our infrastructure. What do you want to understand about your supply chain, whether it's hardware or software, or even people that are supplying the the human resources that you need to execute on the, the IT mission of the department? What do you need to know about it uh, moving forward that maybe you weren't keeping track of or weren't looking at as closely before? Well, I, I think it's a starting from cradle to grave process. Uh, Francis, where you need to look at where these things have been developed, uh, who's developing them, and following that through. So maybe the federal government needs to get more involved with industry and, and make sure that those uh, new and required technologies are developed securely and safely. What does the ideal relationship look like in your view? What do those conversations, what does that dialogue look like, sound like with industry so that you're aware of that stuff? I imagine you want that at your level and, and your team's level and not just a broad enterprise level across government? I think that's a good question. I think it starts with our requirements as, as a federal department and the federal government as a whole, and then working closely with industry. VA does work closely with our vendors and industry now. I just think it requires a, a more closer, better understanding of requirements and those security requirements that are critical uh, for IT security. Is there something that you could do, uh, not you personally, but that the agency could do to make those requirements clearer, more detailed, uh, or maybe broader and, and give 
industry more latitude to come to you and say this solution may help meet the problem that you have, the, the challenge that you have, rather than something as prescriptive? I think the VA does a great job working with vendors. I think this is a whole government approach, Francis. I think we need the new administration to come on and develop legislation to kind of help develop more supply chain requirements and, and do that whole government approach. I think as, as the U.S. government doing it together, we'll have more success. I want to shift gears more toward the privacy end of things. What is kind of the state of the art of the privacy landscape now? What, what do organizations like VA do to ensure privacy? Is it focused a lot on technology? Is it focused more on policy uh, and procedures, some combination of all of those, or some other element that I really missed? Well, it's yes to all that. I think, uh, Francis, uh, it's really the people. We start with the employees. They need to be trained. They need to know safe procedures to safeguard veteran data. We need to use state-of-the-art technology, obviously, and to use those procedures not just within the government, but across academia and industry and working together as a team. So it's really those three critical pieces are needed for success in privacy. I think if someone were to think about privacy issues at the Department of Veterans Affairs, obviously veteran PII would be, I imagine, your holy grail. That's, I'm sure, though, not the entire landscape of what you think about privacy-wise. What are some of the other components of uh, privacy that you think about, about v at VA? Well, that's a great question too, Francis. So we have about 20 million veterans that we support and uh, we hear about healthcare. We are the largest provider of healthcare in the country. But we also have a very robust uh, benefit. So we have financial data to protect and also we work with securing um, cemetery services. So those three critical uh, functions, all of them have privacy data in there need to be protected. And each one of those bring unique challenges that we need to uh, meet and be successful in. We'd like to talk about those challenges next time you come on the program, Joe. Thanks very much for joining me. Thank you, Francis. Appreciate it. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every program. If you sign up for our daily program guide, you just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.